You're listening to Top Traders Unplugged, episode number 024, where I continue my conversation with Anas Lindell, co-founder and chairman of Informed Portfolio Management. This episode is sponsored by Saxo Bank and Swiss Financial Services. Welcome back to Top Traders Unplugged, where the best traders in the world come to share their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Let's rejoin the conversation with your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. Within each theme that you could try and, and uh, visualize for us. I know you've talked a little bit about it. Um, for example, I'd love to talk a little bit about carry. Mm-hmm. I'm no expert. Uh, but obviously, carry has been quite a, a big uh, source of return for many people for a while. And actually, my my guest uh, last week was quite concerned about some of these trades that are being put on, uh, in, in his opinion, by large um, asset managers to compensate maybe for not making so much money in the directional uh, arena, because if we look at currencies at least developed currencies volatility has gone down uh, uh dramatically uh, in in recent time and and so you know maybe talk a little bit about you know how you see if if you're going to drill down on on sort of your carry models how how do they work what do they look for um in in in, in your world <laughs> Well, I, I think the, as a starting point, and, and this is, uh, I don't know who said that first, but carry trading is really about picking pennies in front of a steamroller. Exactly, yeah. Um, and the greedier you get, the closer to that steamroller you're going to be. Sure. Um, and, and, and typically, it always, it, more often than not, it, it, it ends in tears. Um, one typical example of that would be the carry game that sort of started in 2006, continued through 07 and into 2008, uh, involving obviously the Japanese yen. Mm-hmm. Um, and that ended, I suppose, for, for many of the people that, that continued pushing that trade all the way into first quarter of 2008. That, that certainly ended in, in, in tears for them. Mm-hmm what our model did was go against this to a very large extent. So we paid a little bit on on, 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 uh, on our positioning in yen in seven, uh, late six, uh, all the way through seven, up until January, uh, where the first bank came and, and, and March of 2008, when the, when the second instance happened, mm. when we profited quite a bit uh, on, on the, the, the sort of uh, collapse of that carry bubble, if you like. Right. So it's sort of a general observation, sure. a, a more, you know, specifically to our models. There, there's nothing fancy in what we do on, on, on carry. Obviously, we have our own models trying to identify both carry in, in, in you know, the traditional sense of the word and, and changes in carry and, you know, a few other things related to that. But the most notable point with our model is, again, that it's relative. Mm. We, we're not interested in, in the absolute level of, of carry per market, we're interested in the deviation from the longer term average carry, if you right. like, that's right. been yeah, delivered sure. by a particular market sure. in relation and, and risk adjusted and things. So just because we have a situation where 
statically over time, um, you know, Kiwi and Aussie has, has, has probably delivered better mm-hmm. than most other markets over the past, you know, 10 years or, or 15 years, uh, whatever. Um, and um, that doesn't mean in our books that we necessarily, from a carriage perspective, always have to be long those markets because we're interested in how much does carry in Australia today differ from what it has been on average over right. time. And that, that, that makes a big difference when, when you trade like that, rather than trying to evaluate the, the sort of absolute opportunity set. So in a sense, uh, it would almost be like, if I'm right, um, going the opposite way. So as this carry opportunity deteriorated and some people levered up to get the same absolute return, your models would actually go the other way and delever because the opportunity was was de- was going down. That um, that would be entirely reasonable, yes. Okay. Interesting. In terms of these strategies, macro valuation, risk premium, market dynamics, for example, I mean, are there any of these that are more dominant in, in, in the portfolio uh, or in the program sort of structurally? Um, not really. Uh, um, if you look at uh, and inside each of those boxes, you would find a number of different factors. What we try and do is here too to try and be unbiased. When we design our risk factors, we, you know, almost per definition, they're designed to be uncorrelated with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, central distribution and all that. They are designed and, and we only introduce them given that they contribute enough in, in, in terms of forward-looking sharp expectation, if you like. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a typical risk factor may deliver something like 0.1, 0.2. Uh, in in in, uh, in in expected shop. Mm. Now, as they has have qualified for the model, we believe they are sound. We believe they will continue to deliver over time this forward-looking uh, shop, and hence uh, we think it is relevant to to actually equal weight these risk factors. Mm-hmm. We don't believe in altering the weight uh, based on historic performance or, or, you know, akin to increasing the weight on stuff that's been successful in recent times and decreasing uh, weights on on stuff that's been unsuccessful in recent times. Because that, again, would lead you into a situation where, you know, you basically increase your bet on everything that's gone well over the past time, so you become a momentum trader. Uh, obviously, if things continue to underperform over an extended period of time, you should start asking yourself the question, why, why is this? Or is it not properly defined? Um, has this particular thing all of a sudden be- you know, become arbitraged away? Um, or are we looking at it from the wrong perspective? And this, then the, those questions will go into the research process. So at a factor level, everything is, as, as a starting point, uh, pretty much equal weighted. If you look at the um, main themes, value, risk premium, macro, and market dynamics, the, the strategy will come out as having a little bit of a value bias. Uh, generally, and this is pretty natural as as we are trading on on sort of mean reversion to either longer term equilibria or or um, um, or value, mm. and we're using fundamental information. So you should expect this to have some degree of value bias, um, not a strong one, but sure. a little bit. Sure. And looking at, if I can define it like that, um, a model is something 
um, that could generate some level of, of signal and thereby some kind of scoring impact on the overall portfolio. How many of these quote-unquote models would you say uh, that there is combined in, in, in the whole strategy? Because it sounds like there are a lot of, a lot of moving parts that can influence uh, each of, of the markets and the themes. Mm. Uh, there's a little over 40 different um, um, risk factors or, okay. or, or some models, if you like, that goes into this. And given all of your experience, uh, just our curiosity, is there any is there any indicator when you look at the global sort of economy that, that you like better than others, do you think is more reliable than others? Uh, it's a matter of horizon. Personally, um, personally, I, I do like uh, traditional valuation metrics. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I, I think ultimately they, they are um, reliable. Um, they make a whole lot of sense from a fundamental and, and theoretical perspective, mm. uh, but it can take you know significant time for them to play out. Right. How frequently do you run the model? Is that because obviously some of these factors don't change every day, uh, maybe let alone every week? I mean, how does it actually work on a on a sort of a, on on a running the model overall basis? Mm. It is actually run on a, on a daily basis, right. and, and the model is reestimated on a daily basis because what goes in, you know, there, there might be a, an odd price here, there might be an inflation number from there. So if you look at the world today and all of those markets that we trade, it's likely there's going to be, you know. A couple of new inputs at least per week, um, even on a daily basis. Quite often, uh, obviously, some some periods going to be more intense than others. But also, as market prices move around, um, the 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 model will 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 observe this and 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 try and adjust positions accordingly. Because what the model comes out with is desired exposures mm. per market on a daily basis. And if market has pushed us into a direction where that exposure has grown or or, or uh, contracted relative to what the model, model wants it to be, then you know some some level of, of corrections will have to be done. So there's a little bit of trading actually going on a daily on a on a daily basis. But you know compared to most other managers in in the traditional systematic space, I dare say our trading intensity and portfolio turnover is is very very low right now um if i'm not mistaken you're not really using a, a traditional stop loss in the model as, as 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 many people uh do in the systematic space uh, mm-hmm. at least um tell me philosophically a little bit about why that is and when not doing it uh that way how do you how do you to begin with um determine the risk for 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 new trades if i can put it that way not so much for how you manage the risk overall we'll get to that but just si- sort of the sizing issue when when you put on new trades um how, how does that work when when you're not sort of utilizing a, a stop loss mm-hmm. um starting with stop losses yep. I, I think mo- most of the people that actually use stop losses are exactly people or firms that model individual instruments in their own right. So basically right. They're, they're building a portfolio out of you know, 40, 50, 100 traded instruments and they can set, assign a stop loss to each individual position. Sure. So if they stop themselves out of soybeans, 
that doesn't change anything for their positioning in, in, in base metals. Sure. Or they stop themselves out of uh, Canadian GAVIs. It doesn't mean anything for the S&P futures. Whereas in our setting, everything is modeled against everything else. Right. So the positions that we take are you know, entirely dependent on all of the other positions. So if we identify or if we were to identify a, a particular instrument having taken significant losses over the past period, um, and we would say, right, so let's stop ourselves out of that one. That will immediately change uh, the entire portfolio because not only do we have, have, have to kill that particular position, we have to alter all of the other positions with wholly unpredictable results mm-hmm. in the end. We may, you know, do something inherently smart by doing that, or, or it may be, um, you know, incredibly stupid. Additionally, the way this model works is that, you know, we have to accept a certain risk of drawdowns mm-hmm. on individual instruments and, and indeed on the whole program for it to play out. Because what this model does is, you know, take something very, very simple to exemplify. If we're looking again at the, at the PPP valuation model on currencies, and that one identifies a particular currency, let's call it uh, the Swedish krona, right. uh, that starts getting, you know, underpriced in relation to value. We would start buying that. In all likelihood, that currency is going to continue, the Swedish krona is going to continue to become even further underpriced. Mm in relation to fair value before it starts mean reverting back. During that period, we will start almost immediately to Mm. buy and then we will continue buying and increasing that position all the way to the trough. Mm. And that means that in that period when we build a position, you know, almost per definition, we're going to take losses to be max long at the trough Mm. and then start profiting from that. Now this can play out over, over you know, a couple of different scenarios. Uh, a typical scenario that would cause losses for any model like this, and, and, and this is certainly true for our model like this, is, is a traditional sort of value trap, mm. which is almost exactly what I just described. Mm. These are things that will play out over a longer period of time, uh, and you will build your position and take further and further losses. Yeah. Uh, we, we're okay with this. To, to a limit or, or, or to a degree. I'll, I'll get back to how, sure. how we try and compensate for that. Um, but it wouldn't necessarily be meaningful to, to, to take a stop loss in such a scenario because what will happen is we, we, we're going to pay the price to build the position to be long when it starts mean reverting, but we'll kill the position before that starts happening. Mm-hmm. The other scenario is, you know, very, very fast moves in the markets. Uh, let's say something like 1987 would happen again or, or the Fed hike in 94 or, you know, long-term and Russia crisis in 98 or, or whatever scenario that you can imagine where all of a sudden, this is typically centered around equities. Right. Markets, you know, sell off 10, mm. 15, 20% in, in, in a very short period of time. Uh, August 2011, for example. Right. Um, so here's a situation where we're going to face, you know, a, a steep loss. You know, if we come into this um, sort of in, in uh, not cor- correctly position, we would face a steep loss, and almost inevitably, uh, what happens on the back of that is that markets swing back, right, relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. 
um, these are not, uh, you know, scenarios that that continue for for uh, quarters or or years. Typically, they swing back pretty quickly. So, what you're going to accomplish with a stop loss in a scenario like that is that you're going to lock in profits, and you're going to be um, your position is going to be small, too small uh, when it swings back. Mm. So, from that perspective, too, stop losses wouldn't be productive. What we try and do, though, to uh, limit our exposure to uh, various type scenarios is is that we're we're setting limits to how big we can be on each market. Right. You know, exposure ranges. We say so. We say for the full risk program, we may never uh, be longer than X percent or shorter than X percent in 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 a particular market. Right. So that's a limit uh, that the model has. Additionally. Uh, at at risk factor level, and this is part of the portfolio construction process, uh, we actually try and limit, or not try, we actually do limit uh, how strong signals can go into the final portfolio construction stage. So let's say that you have a signal of, you know, let's call it one. Yeah. And you would then take position in proportion to that one. And the one here, by the way, would be standard deviation. So it's entirely, you know, reasonable to take a position that is, you know, X against a single standard deviation signal. Sure. Now let's assume the the opportunity moves to become much more significant. So we end up in a two standard deviation signal, right. which would be, you know, immensely rare. But you know, as we all know, such things happen uh, more often than statistics sure. prescribe. Yeah. Um, so our model would then like to double this position, pretty much. Yeah. You know, here's where it starts getting iffy. Uh, we're still okay with that, but you know, if we, if you double that again, let's move from two to four sigma or standard deviation uh, events. Uh, they wouldn't happen often in a person's life. Sure. Um, would you be comfortable doubling up again? Um, and here's where we start, you know, taking a step back and say. Yeah, the model is probably right. Uh, you know, this represents a four standard deviation scenario as as a model is defined, and and really we we should take position based on that. However, knowing that that would be a very large position, we will also expose the model to a significant risk of drawdown, mm. uh, based on you know basically timing. Because the model may be off with, uh, you know, th- this thing may may not mean revert for another two months or three months. Sure. So the, the likelihood of a drawdown would, would increase dramatically. Mm-hmm. So here's where we start limiting at some point north of two standard deviations. We actually start limiting the strength of signals that, that are allowed into the portfolio construction stage. That makes sense. Yeah. And um, how long are your trades actually on average? Uh, because they, they, they seem long term. Mm. Um, general general average yeah. would be about a year uh, on the currency side, uh, a little bit shorter, mm. you know, nine months, let's call it, um, and on the asset side, a little bit longer, but on, on average, yeah. What's the most difficult sector to trade actually on uh, based on your method? Do you find? I mean, you mentioned August eleven, and we all know uh, equities were were tough, um, in particular because of the uncertainty about the U.S. default risk. Um, is that a particular difficult sector to trade when these things happen because they react quickly? Um, or Yes, uh, equities in general and in particular relative equities uh, with our way of modeling 
um, is, is, is quite difficult. Mm. Uh, currency markets, uh, I wouldn't say they're easy, but it's uh, <laughs> a little bit more straightforward. You get uh, you know, the responses that, that you're striving to get. Mm. And um, what do you think drives these relationships that you profit from? I mean, is it more economically sort of changes or is it investor psychology or is it just human behavior meaning you know as i've mentioned before things go in cycles and they we tend to come back to to the mean what what do you what have you observed over the years i i i, I would be inclined to say all of the above right but um i think it's good well actually i think it's a combination of different things um One way, you know, to exemplify would be to uh, step back to um, the fall of 2012 uh, when they started talk talking about uh, the introduction of a quantitative easing program down in Japan. Right. Obviously, a lot of people were pretty quick to respond to that. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the likelier it, it became to them based on, you know, their, their analysis of the of political and, and, and central bank situation, people started running ahead of themselves and take position on this. And, and running ahead of themselves probably the wrong expression there because a lot of people did that you know, with significant profit. Sure. But as that uh, continued, you know, some of the earlier people that were earlier in probably started taking their profits and saying this has run its course, whereas others, once it has sort of trickled down to the more general investing community, um they they continued in in that same direction mm-hmm. uh whereas our models they they wouldn't be they wouldn't hear what you know the the open mouth operations by by bank of japan they would only note this when it starts materializing in 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 hard data right which means that Here's a trend in in markets established by you know people trying to anticipate uh, what Bank of Japan is going to do and and how the currency market is going to react, how the fixed income market react, and certainly how the equity market is going to react to this, and and what corporate profit is going to be like in 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 Japan going forward. So pro- based on that, uh, and this is something that typically happens, is that people people extend what initially seems to be reasonable trends, they extend them way too far. Mm. And then when the final realization comes through that, hey, you know, um, the corporate sector in, in Japan is, isn't going to be as profitable as as they could have been based on this. And, and the yen isn't going to 180 against the dollar. Right. Uh, Or, or whatever number they had targeted, sure. then you have a, a reversal of that. Yeah. And this is you know, typically what, what a model like ours would try and profit from. So generally, investor behavior, uh, you know, people trying to um, not only follow the trend, but people generally overextending it right. far beyond the point when it has contact with um, underlying fundamentals. Sure. That's one major point. Another major point that I want to mention mm. is actually time horizon or investment horizon. Okay. Um, you know, people may trade in or out or, or create trends and, and, and prices may deviate. You know, it's just noise mm. over shorter time, time spans. And we're trying to step back and avoid that by, by explicitly trading and holding positions a longer period of time. 
a couple of things um, comes to mind when you say that. I mean, in one sense, um, it, it, it actually is a great injustice, not just to your strategy, but to many strategies you can say is to for investors to look at these things on a monthly basis and kind of judge you on based what, what did you do last month. Because what you're really saying is that part of of the uh, success is having the ability to take a much longer view and not be concerned about you know, an adverse move uh, over the next few weeks because you know it's going to work out maybe over the next few months. Um, but I also wanted to to uh, ask you a little bit, just position sizing. Is is that the secret sauce, do you think, meaning that um, a lot of the themes that you end up in, and, 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 and I, I imagine a lot of the strategies and positions you end up in would be somewhat similar to other global macro managers. But I do note that you've done quite well compared to your peers. And do you think position sizing is part of the uh, of the success that you simply, yeah, manage the risk differently? Maybe. Yeah, I, I think there are several parts to it, and 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 several moving parts here. What what I tend to say to clients that want to evaluate what it is we're doing is that nine out of ten clients, um, you know, for good measure, I'll throw in the the consulting community here too. Right. Um, they are spending way too much time focusing on what we refer to as those risk factors. Right. They want to, to know them all and you know, they're looking at purchasing power parity and they want to understand exactly how we build that particular factor while noting that academically spe- speaking, PPP has a mean reversion time of sure. 50 years. Clearly not investable. Sure. And they're spending all of their time trying to understand, you know, do you have the right alpha sources? Are they advanced enough? Uh, are they sophisticated? Do they differ from your competition? And, you know, that guy over there, they also have PPP factors. Well, you know, yeah. Those alpha sources, <clears throat> risk factors, yes, they're important, obviously. They're very important. But risk and portfolio construction, respectively, contribute, you know, to the same degree to the final result. So I would say, you know, spend one third of your time trying to understand what we do on the alpha side. Mm. Uh, the other third you should spend on, on risk management and the third third you should spend on, on, on understanding our portfolio construction because it, it is a combination that yields the final result. And in each of those areas, I, I would say you will find differences between what we do and, and what a lot of other people do. Some people may do may have almost the identical setup when it comes to alpha factors, but in all likelihood, and, and to my knowledge, they would differ in either of or indeed both of portfolio construction or risk management, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, as you mentioned, position sizing—that's one area where we do things that's different uh, from most of the investment investing community. When we say that we want positions that are principally uh, proportional to the perceived opportunity. Another area where we, where we would differ clearly is the way we construct the final portfolio by way of you know transitioning signals into positions. Most people would use some form of more or less traditional optimization scheme there in the middle, and they would, for the most part, make use of the correlation structure when they construct, construct their portfolio. And and here's where we differ. We don't use the correlation structure there. Mm. And to exemplify, if you have, you know, positive views on both of the Australian and and New Zealand dollar, right. and we know they're strongly correlated, sure. 
it is relatively likely that you know any traditional or almost traditional optimization scheme would like you to short one to go longer the other mm. due to the correlation structure. Um, this is fundamentally wrong, we believe, uh, for a couple of reasons. A, um, you know, if we have a positive view on two assets or two currencies, uh, we want to be long both mm. because we're not forecasting the correlation structure. Mm. Uh, and we would be fundamentally against our principles to, to short something we have a positive view on. Mm. Uh, two, um, that optimizer um, will relatively often push you in, in, into what is referred to as corner solutions, right? Yeah. And um, that means that as something then change over the next week or month, it is not unlikely to want to push you in, in, into the direction of another corner. And that will, if you take position based on that, then that will uh, cause a lot of trading costs for you. Right. You will change your positions quite a bit. Finally, if you do this, shorting one to go longer than the other, your best concentration is going to increase quite a bit. Right. And neither of these three are, are sort of traits that we're very comfortable with. So indeed, here we, we don't use correlation structure. We we sim well simply yeah. not simply, but we transition signals into positions. And then when it comes to the risk overlay, then uh, we're using um, the correlation structure. It's very interesting because um, I mean it seems to me that uh, maybe unlike uh, a lot of people doing relative value, where I think to some degree they're trying to take out the volatility of their returns um, by doing you know relative value. What you're doing is saying we're doing relative value, but we're actually okay with having volatility in our returns because we can't we can't remove volatility from inherently underlying assets that are volatile. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's an, that's an interesting observation. I, th I think you know, I, another way is, is of 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 looking at it is to say that you know the volatility that we get and certainly some of the drawdowns that we as everyone else gets they are the price you have to pay uh, because you don't have obviously perfect insight mm -hmm. in our specific case we believe we have the right positions but the timing we don't really know when markets are going to start moving back to that sort of longer term equilibrium so we have a problem with timing and that's why we simply say we start building positions uh, we increase positions as the opportunity increases you know to a good degree yeah. and meanwhile you know we, we're not happy, but well, we are prepared to take the losses to build that position, and uh, we are happy to take the, or we have to accept the the associated volatility because again we don't know where the market is going to turn. Have you ever had to override the models? Not the actual models. Um, we wouldn't override the models in the sense that we would alter, you know, the positioning or or, or, or such. What we can do, and we have done on occasion, is sure. that we can lever or, well, not lever, sure. we can delever the entire program. Yeah. And this is a measure we would take uh, after, obviously, careful consideration at the Risk Management Committee. Mm. And it would basically be based on a view on the functionality of markets. Mm. So the best example here would be, you know, September, October 2008, right. when we uh, delivered, uh, um, you know, quite a lot. Yeah. Now, the next area, and, and I'll, 
probably won't spend too much time on it because you've already talked quite a lot about it, which is which is great. And then that's really sort of risk management. And, and I've just got a couple of things I wanted to to touch on, and that is how do you define risk? What what to you is 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 uh, what's a good measure of risk in your opinion when when you look at these type of strategies? Um. Well, there are, there are sort of two answers to that, at least. Um, what we control for at program level is actually expected volatility. Right. Um, and inside the model, as I mentioned, we're limiting, you know, certain, uh, certain signal sizes, etc. Sure. This is ba- based on, on tendency drawdown, akin to you're really focusing on, on sort of tail behavior, uh, which you know leads to to sort of expected shortfall type thinking. Um, so this is what we do now. Do I believe that expected volatility is really a good measure of risk? Well, no, I don't. What 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 I would like to do at some point, and this is something we've talked about on and off for the past eight nine years, whatever, <laughs> is really to start looking exclusively uh, the, the, the expected shortfall and really to, to, to build models uh, that would take that and only that into account. Mm-hmm. The problem with that is that if you're targeting and limiting, um, controlling, I should say, exclusively for expected shortfall, uh, the model may well find itself in a situation where it says, you know, that left tail is, is about zero today, so I'm happy trading at 40-50% expected volatility. Mm-hmm. So the volatility of your volatility and certainly on the upside, traditional volatility, uh, would increase uh, dramatically mm. or has the potential sure. to increase dramatically. And this was, is not something that would be, uh, uh, shall we say, immediately accepted by clients. No. So why we then target the expected volatility? Well, it, it is a, a measure. And for us, it has actually worked. It is a measure to make or to protect the model, Mm. I should say, because the model is very slow moving. The Mm. model is blind to political statements, central bank um, speak, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And and, and to sudden sudden turns in the market that that cannot be predicted or or measured by by fundamental data. So the market model is slow moving, blind to a whole lot of things. So what we then need to do is to protect the model Mm. by using a method to pick up on peaks in or or dramatic or bigger increases in in market volatility. Because either we're in a situation, you know, volatility spikes, uh, either we're in a position that we actually profit from that, mm. in which case, you know, it's it's sensible to take some profit, deliver a bit, and then wait for volatility to mean revert back down and start putting positions on again. And nobody's ever uh, gone poor by, by taking profit. <laughs> um, so in those scenarios, it's, it's probably a good thing. It could be that we come into a situation where, uh, we have the opposite position, and we, we actually lose too much on it, then it sort of resembles a bit of a stop loss. Right. Because if volatility spikes and we have you know, wrong positions, then obviously we're going to start losing money, and the model will then start delivering. So it will reduce the sort of further loss of, of, of capital, if you like. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, it, it has the same 
characteristic as a stop loss when markets turn back up again because it will then have delivered. Yeah. So once markets start reverting back up again, it will come into that with the uh, two small positions. Mm. But that's the price to pay. Right. Um, what keeps you awake at night, meaning what is the risk that you fear the most? Because at some point, there is obviously something that, you know, you can't guard against, you know, even with the most elaborate strategy and, 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 and risk management. Uh, what, what would that be? Um. Generally speaking, I, I sleep very well. My wife uh, <laughs> would be the first to testify to that. Sure. <laughs> but uh, uh, what, if anything, would keep me awake at night? Uh, situations when markets quite apparently uh, behave irrationally. Right. And certainly when they continue behaving and pretty much everyone would agree they, they continue behaving irrationally for for some time, mm. uh, because then we find our, ourselves in a situation where you know we cannot expect the model to act in a predictable fashion. Mm. Whether we make money or not, sure. or, or lose money or not, is entirely random. Mm. Such a scenario, and we're not in the game of 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 sort of taking big positions in. And we do take pretty significant positions in this program. Sure. Uh, it's not really built to to uh, collect on 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 random behavior. Right. And these scenarios, they they you know they 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 do occur from time to time. When we're focusing on something completely different. Sure. Do you think the risk of of markets behaving completely irrational has that increased in 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 the last few years with so much involvement from politicians and central banks? Uh, or is this just part? I, yeah, I think most, most people looking at uh, their lives, trading experience, you know, of my age, we've been talking about 20, 25 years, they would probably say that's true. On the other hand, if you then, if you read, uh, read um, whatever book on the topic and you go back to the Dutch <laughs> tulip mania or, you know, sure. uh, market crashes in the late 1800s, etc., I'm not so sure that market uh, and investor irrationality has increased over time. Okay. I think we, we, we feel that at the current time, sure. probably, but uh, that's only because our time window is too short. Sure. I want to jump to the next topic, uh, just again, very briefly. Um, it's just a little bit about drawdowns. Um, yeah. I want to ask you a little bit about what, what one should expect in terms of drawdown uh, from a strategy like yours, but also want to ask you... Um, how you cope with being in a drawdown? Uh, I noticed that obviously your drawdowns are not that large, if I can say, put it like that. Um, um, but you know, uh, the emotional roller coaster that uh, we uh, tend to go in, uh, if if we are in a drawdown, especially if it's a deep one, but also if it's a long one, uh, can be you know that's part of what's being hard, I think, about being uh, in in this business. So I just want to sort of maybe ask you a little bit about how you. Uh, how, how you cope uh, with, with these things emotionally. And maybe that's not from a recent example, but but maybe sort of over your career. Mm. No, I think um, a main source of strength in, in, in this type of scenario is that we are systematic. Right. Had we been uh, discretionary traders, and, and you would face some of the drawdowns that we've had, and mm. uh, you know probably our largest drawdown would have qualified for you know uh, us losing the money if we had we'd been on a prop desk almost immediately. Right. 
uh, or at least seeing it halved or, or whatever taken away. But as we are systematic, one, we, we have to seek comfort in the fact that we believe the model is right over time. We believe this is temporary and eventually it, it, will, come, it will come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we start tampering with the model or, or, or we start sort of adding to delivering by, by discretionary measure or, 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 or such things, then then in all likelihood we're only going to make the situation worse. Mm-hmm. So this is a program that we traded for a very long time. We put you know enormous amount of manpower and brain power into the de- development of it. We believe it has proven itself. So you know the the main main thing here is really to seek comfort in the fact that we're systematic. And then this really comes down to you know um one of the reasons for being systematic in the first place right. is to avoid exactly this emotional behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, you, it, would, you would be most inclined to kill your positions just when it feels the most uncomfortable. And this is often what investors do with managers, in my experience. They mm-hmm. often redeem right at the worst possible time which is similar to us having a position or a or period of, of of negative performance so the question is Anas, and i know you've done in my opinion quite a lot of, of and a quite unique way of, of of bridging the gap but how do we transfer this comfort and this belief that you have in your own system through the difficult time to the investors because i know you've got a special group of people inside your business you know working very closely with your investors in terms of mm-hmm. transparency so is that the way forward just being yeah. extremely open about it yeah i think so i think so you know we, we're the most comfortable when our clients um have almost complete information they know what we're doing they know the model they know how it's work how it works and, and, you know, we, we could go pretty far in that discussion with clients mm. just to make them fully understand what it is we do, how we do it, why the positions are taken, etc. I think there's no, that there's no alternative, really, mm. uh, for this type of strategy. We need investors uh, that have confidence in what we do based on knowledge of what we do. Mm. And that can only be accomplished by, um, you know, complete transparency. And the, the more you know, the more client dialogue, the more we have prior to initiation of a mandate and also ongoing, the better. Mm, absolutely. Now, uh, next topic I have is is research. And um, now, generally, investors they they want managers to innovate and come up with new things, but it, and and evolve, but they don't really want them to change uh, at the same <laughs> times, uh, which is sort of quite difficult, yeah, uh, yeah. I guess. H- how do you? How do you balance these two things, and 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 what does research? Uh, how does research look like inside IPM? Um, well, I, I touched upon you know our, our frequency sure. of, of changes uh, just briefly earlier. Um, obviously, we we have to evolve the model. Mm-hmm. It has to you know improve. We have to add um, new components, mm-hmm. but there's nothing built into it saying that we absolutely have to change just for the sake of it. What we're trying to do is 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 to add uh, where we find weaknesses. We have to add where we find interesting uh, opportunities mm. all within the same 
setup. So what we wouldn't alter is is the the fundamental way of doing things. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't take a you know to take something ridiculously extreme. We wouldn't take a a, a trend following component and just adding that because it's outside of 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 you know our self-imposed limitations on 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 what we do philosophy if, if like mm. um so there's going to be a few changes uh over time but it, it's a gradual development and this really reflects the research process also because the research process here is very very thorough mm. it would be rare to find something newly introduced that hasn't been in the works for 6 to 18 months at least six, mm-hmm. you know, just finding the right data sets, grabbing all of the data. Uh, by the way, starting even earlier, identifying what it is that uh, we, we think can fix yeah. whatever problem we, we have identified, coming up with a couple of ideas, identifying the prior assumptions that, uh, that we want to lock away and, and, and measure the ultimate performance of, of this new thing mm-hmm. against. To verify that it's actually doing what it was supposed to be doing, rather than just being a, a sort of general source of alpha, then finding data that is reliable, long-term enough. Mm. We, we can build something based on on three, four years worth of data. We, it's got to be a long-term history, and it's got to be clean data. Sure. And then building the model, testing it against all of the other facts. All of this, this is a very time-consuming process. Yeah. Are there any particular interesting areas that you're looking at right now that you think could could be uh benefit you um, in in the future without giving anything away of course <laughs> <laughs> then the, the the short answer would be yes <laughs> no there, there are a couple of areas um, um, you know generally speaking we, we're trying to broaden and deepen the model at the same time so in terms of broadening of the model we'd be looking at or, or deepening the, or the model I should say we'd be looking at, at, at uh, new factors this is probably sort of less interesting for 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 your listeners at this sure. point. Broadening of the model. One good example is what we did last year. We we introduced uh, the emerging market currency model. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we're looking at right now is is broadening the model uh, of uh, by way of potentially start trading uh, fixed income curves or, okay. or yield curves okay. explicitly. We do have commodities uh, on the research agenda, although it's not the highest priority at the current time. Sure. In terms of risk management, as opposed to risk control, right. um, we're hard at work at the current time to to be able to build rebuild the model such that we're able to uh, measure what sort of exposures we have in the dimensions of global risk factors. So. You know, what sort of beta risk do we have? What sort of duration risk? What sort of inflation risk uh, or exposures? All of, just identify how are we exposed on, on, on you know, a number of, of dimensions. Mm-hmm. And then in the next step, you know, how and what and how can we do to control for that? How do you make a backtest meaningful? Because uh, there's never been a bad backtest, if you know what I mean. Um what what is important when you look at the results from your research and you look at the test of the model, what 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 in particular are you looking for to verify and say yeah this is actually not just something that um, looks mm. good but is something that is robust because I I I, I get the, the the sense that robustness is really important for you. Mm. Um, 
how, how do you how do you look at a backtest and, and and realize that this is pretty robust I, I think as a starting point we we do what probably everyone else do or or in some instances claim they do you know you, you test on a limited set of data mm. uh, you lock away other other you know other sets of data and then then um, then you verify your results by 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 um, running on on that part of the data that it didn't use to calibrate mm. um, another aspect that um, we think is important is to not over calibrate and to not over engineer your model. Mm. Uh, one example of that would be that, as, as we mentioned earlier, we're trying to use as full data sets as possible. Yeah. We're not limiting ourselves to any particular window, whether rolling or short or long, generally speaking, uh, because it would introduce biases and it, it, it may amount to um, over engineering. Um, that's also important. But I think in the end, two most important things is to, um, I, I, I hesitate to use the word scientifically, but <laughs> let's call it scientifically, sure. verify that your thesis yeah. is sound and robust. Mm -hmm. If you come up with a sound thesis and it's supported by theory, then, yeah, I mean, if we have independent support in academic research, et cetera, et cetera, that, that this is sound and it, it is right, then we should, that, that's a strength. And, and finally, um, you know, trying to set up your, your assumptions and, and priors for the new factor. If we say that, and, and I'm just going to use a bogus example, if we say that we've identified that our carry model uh, is really bad. Mm. So then we set off uh, identifying a, a, a new theory uh, that we should uh, be able to trade on. Then we need to verify that uh, here's what we expect from it. It should pick up on carry. We should be able to verify that it picks up on carry. It should do X, Y, and Z. This is written down and locked away. And once we then built this factor and it's tested and calibrated and all of those things, then we need to take a look at the actual outcome. Mm -hmm. Does it deliver what we thought it was going to deliver from the very beginning? Right. If it does and it's passed all the other tests, then you know it's probably a sound and robust factor, mm. or you know there's a good likelihood it's going to be. Sure. If it doesn't, it may may very well deliver strong alpha anyway. Mm. But if it doesn't then you know our hypothesis was actually wrong yeah and then it shouldn't go into the model sure, sure. at least not in that form and based on those results no 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 absolutely now the business side of the firm just a couple of things that i wanted to touch on not maybe not necessarily the the usual questions you get um, um but overall of course you, you you've done really well the, the business is is is, is growing or, or has grown uh, a, a lot but i want to ask you uh, two different things and that is key man risk do mm -hmm. you consider yourself having a key man risk or have you managed to eliminate that also by being systematic and the other thing i wanted to ask you about is have you thought of or maybe even implemented some kind of business succession plan even though i know you haven't even turned 50 but <laughs> we, we mm -hmm. need to consider these things from time to time um I, I think there are at least at least two aspects to key man risk. Um, uh, one of them is that one should talk about. One of them is is time, mm. and the other way one is 
probably confidence or perception. Mm. Um, given that we are fully systematic, given that you know there, there is a large number of people working on 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 the models, etc. Uh, frankly speaking, if if I or any other senior person in the firm were, were to walk out the door tomorrow sure. over the coming year, two years at the very least, mm. uh, the firm is going to continue delivering pretty much the same results as, as uh, one could have expected it to deliver without those senior people having left. Sure. Over the longer term, um, you may have a question as to whether the organization or the remaining organization has the ability to continue developing the business and the models mm. uh, in the same fashion as, pre as, as earlier. But that means you as an investor into this shouldn't be too concerned about key man risk uh, as it applies to, to, to the handling of your money in, in the shorter term. Mm. Because you know, if, if uh, X or Y or I or someone else senior were to leave today, you, know, you, you have a lot of time. Sure. Uh, you, you can sit down and take it uh, uh, you know, quite calmly and evaluate the situation over the coming 6 to 12 to 18 to 24 months and say, hey, yeah, it seems that, um, you know, the organism is is um, healing and repairing sure. itself or sure. it's not. Yeah. So there's no urgency in this. The other aspect of, of key man risk um, has probably more to do with, with confidence or, and, and perception. Mm -hmm. And this is something you cannot do anything about. Sure. Uh, sure. Most investors out there, they would invest based on confidence in, in a number of senior people, mm. frankly. Yeah. And if they leave, then that confidence is gone and it, it's, it, it's a process that will take a considerable time to rebuild for the, whatever uh, you know, people remains in the firm. Mm. So I, I'm sort of saying both yes and no. Sure, there, sure. there is a key man risk, but I think if, if you look at the, the, the proper management and handling of client capital mm. that's been entrusted to you, I think key man risk for, for this firm is not a big issue for you as an investor. Uh, you have a lot of time to evaluate the situation. You don't need to do anything immediately. You can sit down and evaluate over the course of, of you know, several quarters sure. before you take action. Sure. Um, succession plan, well, uh, not really. Um, I, I know we have a lot of there, – there's been a lot of written about succession uh, in hedge funds over the past few years and, and uh, I know a few of the investment banks have been uh, writing analysis on this. Um, I know of relatively few personally hedge funds that, that have successfully done this. Mm. Um, the obvious well-published example would be Caxton, I suppose. Um, there's no formal plan in place. Sure, sure. Um, on the other hand, you know, we just discussed the key man risk. Um, and, and we're seeing, you know, when people can see what now happens at, at the firm, I've, I've sort of left the day-to-day -day operative responsibility for, for, you know, again, day-to-day -day management of the firm, but I, I've certainly not left the firm, so. No, no, and that is in, in a sense a kind of uh, yes, a succession yes. plan. Um, last question on the business side I wanted to ask you is just that obviously you've had tremendous uh, growth, um, but I'm sure it hasn't been uh, necessarily plain sailing along the way. Um, is there any challenges along the way that you can think back of uh, as, as good examples of, of, of sort of things that 
that uh, was tough at the time and 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 sort of how you overcame them or or has it maybe been plain sailing all the way <laughs> <laughs> i wish um no it hasn't um as with everything it, it goes up and down um i think one one um uh, one period in time when when um things uh, didn't go uh, mm. the way we liked it to mm. go was in, in 2011. A, we had this drawdown in August 11, right. um, or mostly in August 11. A lot of people started thinking, hey, you know, uh, is this reliable or um, uh, is IPM indeed uh, yet another of these systematic global macro traders that ultimately blow up? There's been a few, sure. few of those examples. Yeah. Um, and in addition, um, um, you know, my co-founding partner um, principally left the firm at the time. Um, you know, he, we worked together for you know a large number of years. He, he'd gone slightly more passive uh, just prior to, to eleven, but in the end, um, late eleven, he, he more or less left the firm. He retained a position on the board, but not a whole, not, not 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 very active. So you know, people held back given these changes and given the drawdown. People held back, and we even lost uh, you know a couple of smaller accounts, but. You know the losses aside, what it means is that your 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 fundraising activities um, going forward they do get delayed. Right. So that that's sort of a disappointing, um, but uh, but um, uh, to be expected. Sure. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Yeah. Now, you have obviously been in many many meetings and 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 due diligence and and phone calls and and had you know thousands of questions over the years, but. What do you think is the question that investors should be asking you, but they never really do? Because as you alluded to earlier, that they all seem to be very focused on something, trying to understand things that actually you didn't feel were so important. But what, what is really important for investors that they should be focusing and understanding, do you think? Um. That's a tricky one. Uh, again, over the past 15, 16 years, I've had a very large number of questions. I, I, honestly, I think you're touching, uh, touching really upon uh, the most important part. I, I think people should really focus on trying to understand the components. You know, you, you always get the question, so how do you differ from your competitors? Sure. Well, you know, the competitors don't tell me what, what they do, so you're probably in a better position to, to, to tell me, yeah. for starters. Uh, and be, you know, I, I, I can't single out any one area, but you, you should take a more holistic view and look at the whole. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, how does all of these components that we're talking about contribute? How are they put together as a whole? Mm -hmm. Because what, we, what we're talking about is a system that is sort of purpose-built to do just this and all components have been tailored to fit this particular structure. Mm. Uh, we could principally have built this uh, same alpha factors but traded instruments standalone. Why don't we do that? Mm. So uh, how do you put all of the pieces together? It's like a, it's like a puzzle. Yeah. You, you may have excellent, you know, good looking pieces, you shiny and, and all of that, mm. but if they don't fit together, if they're not designed to fit together, 
then you know, irrespective of how good the alpha sources are, they're not going to deliver. So I think that that that's really critical. How how do you put all of the pieces together? Mm. Interesting, and maybe uh, a little bit on that note. I'm just curious, sort of just a, a spur of the moment here. If you were going to invest in another hedge fund, um, and maybe you do, but um, what would be the single most important thing for you to ask that manager? And I don't want you to go into any details as such, but just just you know the hedge fund industry from the inside so if you were going to invest with with someone what would you focus on of all of the things that you could ask i'm not so sure i would focus on any one particular question the most important thing for me would be to meet with um you know the founders slash you know the the driving force in the company mm. and really convince myself that this is a person that is sufficiently knowledgeable and that you know my gut basically says i can trust yeah uh, you know is is this a person that you know i would you know irrespective of what it does irrespective yeah. of, of the sort of strategy i i need to feel that this is a person that really knows it that you know same as we do has put all of the pieces together in in an intelligent manner mm. and for me also it needs to be, you know, he, he, he or she needs to prove this is repeatable. Mm. And why is it repeatable? Mm. It's really interesting you say that, Anas, because I think that those qualities that you mentioned there is probably completely lost, I think, in the normal due diligence right now where maybe one or two analysts come out, they sit with you for not enough time, they ask standard questions, they use a tick box mentality where it's actually not so much about the gut feeling and the personal is more about do they fit these boxes and then they have to convey it in a report to people who've never met you or the manager um, and trying to you know convey these important which is quite sort of personal um, and and emotional uh, things that I agree with you is really the important part because at the end of the day whether you're systematic or not investors by people it's mm. the people mm. behind it so you know by hearing you saying that I, i i feel strongly interestingly enough which is partly the reason why i do these uh, podcasts is for people to connect with the manager hear the passion and and get a feel for the person rather than just a you know written due diligence questionnaire so interesting mm. interesting mm. point no and, and and with a firm like ours you know obviously the person and the staff yeah you know uh, who's working here and, yeah. and you know uh, yeah but as you say i i wouldn't go so yeah obviously i cannot go so far as to say that all of our clients spend too much time on or focus on <laughs> ddqs but sure indeed it has become a bit of a science yeah or pseudoscience if you like where you know you you tick all of the boxes you do your own dd then you hire a consultant that comes and does his dd and they also tick the boxes and then you know you 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 just put it together but as we as you and i touched upon i i think there's too little focus on um let's call it the human aspects yeah yeah absolutely last section uh Anas, we're on the home stretch now um i call it general and fun so it's a little bit about sort of uh Uh, not specifically to to uh, to uh, your your strategy, but but just generally, sort of, uh, what do you think nowadays it 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 takes to become a a, a great 
you know, fund manager or trader? What are some of the, the personal traits? Because as we alluded to before, these are the things that we look for in, in, in making a decision or making a connection with someone. But what are the things that, that, uh, or what, what does it take nowadays to, to become a great manager such as yourself? I, I think that since, since the world has evolved quite significantly since, since 1998, I mean, just, just, one, uh, just one observation, very, very sort of anecdotal, um, you know, 15, 20 years ago, you could start up a hedge fund with, you know, coming out of a, a prop desk or, or whatever, having, you know, a great strategy, you rented an office at Bloomberg, Two guys, and and you got on uh, got on with your trading with a couple of million dollars. You may have got seeded uh, twenty twenty five, and you can actually build a business from that point. Yeah. yeah. Uh, whereas today, you know, the market's gone gone so crowded. The regulatory requirements mm-hmm. are, are are so high that if you don't start pretty much with a full setup of, of of people, and that may be you know anywhere from from sort of six, seven, eight people up to uh, I don't know fifteen, twenty, whatever. Uh, with seed or starting capital in you know the order of magnitude hundred two hundred million dollars, then it's going to be very very difficult for your business to take off. Irrespective how of how 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 good your your strategy sure. actually is, and uh, how smart you are, and and and. Unless you know you have a confluence of events, you're coming out of a bank and they actually uh, give you a couple of hundred to just uh, a supporting gift, or sure. <laughs> you're being one of the sort of tiger cubs and you get yeah. uh, get seated by by Mr. Robertson himself mm-hmm. or, or or such. But those would be the rare exceptions. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, additionally, to start something today, given all of this, requires, you know, uh, probably a lot more hard work and probably a lot more discipline mm-hmm. than, 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 um, than was actually required 20 years ago. Yeah. yeah. And luck, I guess. Uh, luck is always there, yes. Well, you know, you can help yourself to, to some luck too. Yeah, yeah. The harder you work, the luckier you get, as they say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, is there any personal habits that you have that you think have contributed to your uh, success? Uh, um, you know, we know that people like Ray Dalio puts a lot of uh, um, emphasis on his daily daily meditation practices being part of his success. I mean, do you have any personal habits uh, that you that you do that you think are important? It's very hard. You should probably ask my wife. But, um, <laughs> I'll get her on the next uh, yeah, series. <laughs> exactly, exactly. No, I, but I, I think generally speaking, I, I uh, and, and whether I'm better than most at this or not, I'm, I'm not sure. But um, generally, I, I, I am relatively disciplined. Mm. Um, you know, when I take, started taking up running and stuff again, um, uh, you know, a few years back, uh, I actually get out, get out of bed at 5 a.m. And, and, and do this because that's, that's the only t- time of the sure. day that I am 100% sure that I actually have the time to do it. Yeah. So uh, I got nothing better to do. Well, obviously sleep, but I got nothing <laughs> else to do at that time. So, uh, a little bit more probably than, than average discipline, I would say. Sure. And that's very helpful. Yeah. What's the most difficult thing that you have to deal with as as a hedge fund manager today, do you think? Uh, 
Uh, there's any number of things you, you can you can mention, ranging from uh, the ever-changing regulatory environment, sure, which is but that's sort well, of a right? yeah, but that's sort of technical. Sure. That's principally a problem that, that that you can solve by way of throwing money at it. Mm. What you cannot solve, though, uh, that is related to regulatory, but that is also related to sort of perception and, and other things that's on the on the investor side where you know uh, looking at the Dutch market as an example mm-hmm. where investors have I wouldn't necessarily say squee- been squeezed out of, of the hedge fund market by the right. regulator but right. not close to it okay. very close to it and that's very hard to you know how, how can we, we we can't deal with that no. we we simply have to go to another market and we have to start afresh and, and building trust and confidence with investors in other markets mm. yeah no, no, that's very true um on one hand you're a successful fund manager on the other hand you're also an entrepreneur you build a business from scratch did you always have the entrepreneurial gene inside you did you know that one day i want to have my own business uh, I couldn't say I've always known that. On the other hand, I could probably say that I'm. I have probably always been a non-optimal employee, <laughs> and over the past fifteen, twenty years, I've probably become even worse as mm. an employee. Mm. Uh, I do like to do things in in uh, you know my way, and I do like to do um, you know push things in in the direction that obviously I prefer. Mm. Having said that, this is the only one and only company I've ever started up. Sure. So I, I couldn't very well call myself sort of a serial or, or actually experienced entrepreneur having started one company. There, sure. There's a whole large number of people that started more. So, yeah. Sure. Sure. And almost at the end, um, I asked my guests whether there is a fun fact that they can share about themselves. Something that even people who might know you don't really know about you. Is there anything that springs to mind? Um, hmm. um, well, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how fun it is, but uh, I, I I tend to think that probably in excess of seventy five percent of my valuable insights and ideas, mm-hmm. they're actually generated between the time I wake up mm-hmm. each morning and the time I step out of the shower. Okay. For I, I actually read a book on 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 a related topic just a couple of years ago, and it, it turns out the human brain actually works pretty much that way. Uh, so, but some people prefer evening times. I strongly prefer morning times. So I even have you know materials in 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 the bathroom to take notes. Sure. How, how fun it is, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I think it's pretty fun, but, oh, uh, you know. Um, last question to you, Anas. I said earlier that, um, you know, investors may not be asking the right questions. They fail to uh, ask certain important questions. But what about today? Have I, What have I missed in our conversation? And what, what questions should I have asked that I didn't? Uh, 
Well, we talked for two hours, 20 minutes, so (laughs) (laughs) you covered quite a lot of ground. Okay. As long as I've done you justice and IPM justice, that's what I want to make sure. Yeah, I mean, we talked, you know, not a whole lot about business development and stuff, but that's um, that's not, you know, that's our doing. That's Mm. not necessarily too interesting for your your, um, uh, listeners. yeah, I think you covered it. We we can take another two or twenty uh, next year and, sure. and and go to bottom with certain things. Okay. Now, before uh, we finish, what's the best place for uh, people listening to this? Where can they reach and learn more about you and an IP? Well, the best way is actually to get in touch with us, and that's um, that's very very simple. You know, contact us via our website, uh, which is ipm.se, and uh, someone will be in touch with you. Fantastic. Let me say to uh, the people listening today that uh, for those of uh, them that are on the uh, mailing list, there is a link in uh, in uh, this week's uh, email. And you can just click that link to say thank you to Anas. Uh, thanks for sharing uh, his story, his expertise. And I really do encourage everyone to do that. Um, so let me be the first, Anas, to say thank you so much for, for uh, all your time. It's been uh, fantastic conversation. I really appreciate your your transparency and your willingness to to share these insights and views uh, on your strategy and your firm and and some personal stuff as well. Um, so so that's been uh, amazing. I really appreciate that. Thank you very much, Niels. It's been a pleasure. Um, it's rare that uh, to have such a conversation over two and a half hours almost with um, you know an interview with such insights in, in into the business in general. So. Highly appreciated. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And of course, the listeners can also find all the details that we've talked about today in the show notes on toptradersonplot.com. And I hope we can connect at a later stage, Anas, and get an update on all the great things happening in your firm. Absolutely. All right. Take care. All the best. You too. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.